Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. I'm Parm Paget, a physical therapist, and I'm part of the podcast team of the DDSIG. I'm excited to be here with Dr. Miriam Rafferty, research scientist at the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab and assistant professor at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. And we have Miriam here today to talk about the new clinical practice guideline related to physical therapy management of people with Parkinson's disease. So welcome, Miriam, and tell us a little bit about um, yourself and what you do. Thanks, Parm. It's great to be here. I'm uh, really excited to be on this podcast. I'm a, a longtime listener, first-time presenter, I guess is the right word. Um, so I am here today. I was a member of the Clinical Practice Guideline Development Group, and I'm one of the co-chairs of the Clinical Practice Guideline Task Force for Knowledge Translation. I am a physical therapist researcher at the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab, and most of my research has related to Parkinson's disease, but also other neurologic disorders. And my methodologic practice now is mostly on implementation science. So one of the things I do in research is research the best way to get to help physical therapists and other rehabilitation practitioners do evidence-based practice. Mm-hmm. And um, when it relates to seek clinical practice guidelines, so what is the best evidence, but also how do we implement the novel, exciting technologies into clinical practice? So mm-hmm. that is the type of research I do. Well, that's so cool. We always here like to kind of keep it clinically based. So um, we're very excited to have you here and and to be talking about this. So let's talk about, you mentioned a little bit about your role in the CPG, but um, sort of walk us through how it came about. This was an interesting clinical practice guideline. So instead of being sponsored by the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy, we were sponsored by the American Physical Therapy Association. So they yeah, they asked each of the sections that works a lot with people with Parkinson's disease to nominate a few members to join the guideline development group. So there were a handful of us that are neuro PTs, but we also had geriatric physical therapists and home health physical therapists as a part of our guideline development group. Oh, that's cool. Um, anyone else? Uh, we also had uh, a movement disorders neurologist from Delaware that was a part of our group. And that was really interesting as well. I don't know if that has been a part of the ANPT clinical practice guidelines, but it was important for us to have this guideline really represent and be understood by other practitioners. Mm -hmm. APTA put together this group, right? And then, and then what happened? How does it move forward from there? Right. So we met, we had our first in-person meeting before COVID. We went to DC and we talked about what the PICO questions were going to be. PICO stands for participant intervention, um, comparator and outcome. So this was our, what were the research questions that we wanted to answer? And we came up initially with a list of 14 or 15 PICO questions And then we sent them to a contract agency. And this was another really nice thing about working with APTA compared to the traditional ANPT processes for CPGs. 
is that we had a contract agency that did all of our critical appraisals and systematic reviews. So they they basically they, they used those PICO questions and did, you know, if there were 14 PICO questions, there were 14 systematic reviews to look at all of the randomized controlled trials specifically to address each one of our research questions. And then they appraised them, decided which ones to include where. We checked that work later, but it was very nice to outsource the initial um, efforts. Yeah, that's got to save some time. So how did you break it up? How did you break up the work as a group? Like we got these systematic reviews back. So they provided us back with systematic reviews with just a lot of data tables. So imagine like that data table that you see in systematic reviews. They provided that back for us for each one of our PICO questions and they split it up. Um, For example, for the aerobic exercise question, it was like aerobic exercise compared to control, aerobic exercise compared to a different type of aerobic exercise. So it's two different aerobic interventions and then aerobic exercise compared to other types of exercise or PT interventions. So there was just a ton of data. So then our clinical practice guideline development group split up roughly based on interest. So I had four PICO questions that I worked on Mm. and my four questions were like, each one of them were slightly different groups, but it was really fun because I got to kind of learn a lot about the topics that I was most interested in. Mm -hmm. All right. So I I just want to ask a little bit more about the PICO questions so that we have an understanding. Give us a few examples of the kinds of interventions. So you talked about aerobic training, but what other kinds of interventions were the systematic reviews completed on? We were interested in aerobic exercise. We had a PICO question on strength training exercise. Mm -hmm. We had a PICO question on balance training and a, a PICO on flexibility. So those were kind of the first four main modalities. We had a PICO question on gait training. Mm-hmm. Uh, we wanted to specifically also, we had another PICO question on external cueing. Mm-hmm. We had a PICO question on expert care. We had a PICO question on um, behavior change strategies for physical activity specifically, although all of our PICO questions, we left the outcome open. So it was really like, d- does behavior using behavior change strategies improve outcomes, any out, any PT outcomes right. compared to other interventions? Right. Right. Okay. Cause yes. Cause you were looking at, cause we're looking at overall general management of people with PD. Right. So we might have like, you know, the, I think if you were trying to be very specific, you might say, well, does aerobic training improve gait? But like, right. we just left it open as does aerobic training improve anything? Right. Okay. Makes sense. So what was the overall goal of, for APTA to pull these people together to do this? You know, that's interesting. I think that there had been some talk kind of at levels above my level about Parkinson's disease and physical therapy. Obviously people with Parkinson's can utilize a lot of physical therapy, some of them. Um, And there's problems with reimbursement for some people with Parkinson's disease with different, Mm -hmm. you know, depending on how much therapy they need. And so I think that there was some push at a higher level to try to say, well, what should physical therapy include for people with Parkinson's? Mm -hmm. And so the goal of the clinical practice guideline is really just to determine, yes, what should physical therapists do? with people with Parkinson's. And it's variable too, right? Like somebody with, with PD could go to a physical therapist in one practice and then go to somebody in another practice and, and the interventions are really different and what, you know, what the focus is can be really different. One of the goals of clinical practice guidelines is to reduce unwanted variation in care. 
Right. So some variation in care is needed. When I treat somebody with very early stage Parkinson's, I am going to do something different than when I'm treating somebody with moderate stage Parkinson's and two people with early or two people with moderate could also get differences in care based on their goals, based on their presentation. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of reasons why we might change what we do, but there's also some unwanted variation and that's what we want to reduce. Right. Yeah. Great. Um, a lot of work happened behind the scenes, but was there anything that didn't really work out or you decided not to kind of move forward with? So there were, the results yielded 11 action statements. Nine of those action statements were high quality. One was moderate quality and one was a low quality recommendation. We also came up with two best practice statements. So this was information that we knew was out there in the literature, but wasn't there weren't a lot of high quality randomized controlled trials. So we did two best practice statements and we had two PICO questions that we actually didn't make any recommendations on, not even a best practice statement. One was on risk factors and the other one was on motor learning. And just, you know, the way that motor learning is studied in Parkinson's, it's just, it's not in this randomized controlled trial sort of way. And we just, we were kind of at a loss for how to make an action statement about it. Okay, got it. So it's not like, it's not like it's bad or that people with Parkinson's don't motor learn. Like we know that they do, but there just wasn't the kind of evidence that would inform something like a CPG. Correct. It was kind of like we asked the PICO and then in hindsight, when we were looking at the literature, it was like, it didn't fit the same pattern that the other PICO questions fit. So the literature was going to be hard to synthesize in the same way. So, yeah. And we actually, we have no action statements that are de-implementation action statements. None of our, Sometimes um, CPGs, you can actually have an action statement that says like physical therapists should not do Mm -hmm. a certain thing. And we have none of those. We just have some that say that this particular intervention is only weakly supported. Right. Okay. So um, before we get into the interventions themselves that are recommended, how is the CPG laid out? So Table one is the really nice summary of those 11 action statements. And so that's going to be the best place to have a quick view of our recommendations. Then for each of the action statements in the body of the CPG, which is quite long, but each action statement has kind of one section that just says there were X number of high quality and X number of moderate quality articles. Mm -hmm. Then there's a brief rationale. And then after the brief rationale is more detail about examples of some of the comparisons. So I think I mentioned earlier that we had aerobic exercise versus control, which Mm -hmm. could be best medical management or sometimes like a very gentle, like, you know, how sometimes they give an active control, like a gentle exercise one, but like you look at it and you think like, this isn't, (laughs) this isn't exercise. No PT would say that this is like an exercise or PT intervention. Right. So there's kind of a control or versus like something else. So we kind of split up those examples in mm-hmm. the more detailed below the rationale. Okay. So if somebody w- wanted more information, they could go into the body of the CPG to look specifically for information related to that recommendation. Before we move on to the recommendations, because what I'd like to do is focus just on the recommendations. I just want to clarify one thing. You had mentioned earlier about best practice statements Mm -hmm. and, you know, best practice statements, if you're not reading this kind of literature and stuff all the time, could 
make somebody think like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do for best practice. But what is the rigor behind the best practice statement? Great question. So best practice statements are things that actually didn't even rise to a low quality recommendation. And so, you know, all of the high, moderate, and low quality recommendations are also recommendations. Best practice statements is where the the literature is really based on is weak. And so the statement is based on the opinions of the experts in the clinical practice guideline development group. Okay. And so they're just either there's weak evidence or not enough evidence. I mean, if there was truly weak mm-hmm. evidence, then you would make a statement about it, but more likely Correct. there's not enough evidence to, to really make a statement about it. Correct. So for example, our best practice statements, one is related to physical therapy and deep brain stimulation surgery. Mm-hmm. And the other one is about expert care. And um, I think what we say for deep brain stimulation, we say in the absence of reliable evidence, the opinion of the guideline development group is that more research is needed on the effects of physical therapist interventions and in individuals undergoing deep brain stimulation. Mm-hmm. So it's right. not even that we should be doing it, but really that we need to do more research on it. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. I just wanted to make sure that that was clear for our listeners. All right. So let's move on to the recommendations. Um, so there were nine high quality recommendations. And what I'm going to do, I, because there's so many, I'm just going to kind of list them. And then maybe we'll pull our attention toward a couple of them that are interesting. So the um, high quality of evidence with strong recommendations is aerobic exercise, resistance training, balance training, external cueing, community-based exercise, gait training, task-specific training, behavior change approach, and integrated care. So um, those are, and actually, I just realized something, Parm. Those are the ones in table one that are listed that they have high quality evidence on them, mm-hmm. but the strength of the recommendation yes, varies is a actually bit. not, it does vary a little bit. And that was, sometimes there was high quality evidence, but we downgraded the strength of our recommendation. Um, and we provide the information about that in the rationale. Normally what that meant was that there were multiple high quality studies but the outcomes that were measured in them were different outcomes. So there might be one high quality study that found positive effects. Uh, I'm going to use external cueing as my example. Mm-hmm. Um, there were multiple high quality studies that talked about how external cueing is good for gait. Um, but maybe there was only one high quality ta- study that talked about freezing of gait and then a moderate couple moderate quality studies that talked about freezing of gait. And so we didn't want to say that this was high quality evidence for all of these outcome measures, because there actually wasn't like, so, so that's where we downgraded things based on kind of the diversity of the outcome measures that were included as well. Okay. So, yeah, so there really are two different things. There's one is the quality of the evidence and the other is the strength of the recommendation. Right. So let's talk about a couple of these actually that had a high quality of evidence, but not as strong of um, a recommendation. So specifically, I wanted to ask about the behavior change approach, because I'm curious kind of what is meant by that and why did that not have that strong recommendation? Our action statement was that physical therapists should implement behavior change approaches to improve physical activity and quality of life in individuals with Parkinson's disease. 
we downgraded it from, it, there was high quality evidence on behavior change approaches, but there was a high variety in the outcome measures that were used. For example, like no two studies use the same physical activity outcome measure. Similar variability exists within the quality of life measures. So it was just really hard to combine all the data. So we have a moderate strength recommendation that physical therapists should do this, but we still use the word should. So that's important. Yeah. And what is meant by behavior change approach? We define behavior change approaches as things that are including strategies that apply health behavior change theories. So for example, there's literature that uses the self-determination theory or the social cognitive theory or the trans theoretical model of health behavior change. And how do physical therapists apply those? So it might be that we are using readiness to change Mm -hmm. and, you know, understanding the patient's readiness to change. It might be something more complex, like a motivational interviewing um, intervention. It might be some of the more common ones that we do are like action planning and goal setting with our patients. And so some of these things are are things that I think physical therapists do naturally. But in these studies, they had to be explicit about saying that they were using those strategies and that the out, you know, one of the things that's not there, for example, is that using behavior change strategies doesn't improve gait, you know, using behavior change strategies, it was typically for a purpose of physical activity, or frequently. Mm -hmm. And so that that was really one of the outcomes that rose to the top. Yeah. And then the other one was the external cueing also had a high quality of evidence and um, a more moderate recommendation. I think this also was just due to the variability in the outcomes that were used, as well as a variability in interventions. And I should have said the same thing about variability in interventions with behavior change approaches. You were lumping a lot of things into one category. And same thing with external cueing. You know, we're lumping in auditory cues, attention or cognitive attention cues, Mm -hmm. rhythmic auditory stimulation, you know, visual cues, like a line on the floor. So there's just a lot that's getting lumped in together. Right. All right. Okay. That makes sense. Before we move on to the um, more moderate and low uh, recommendations, I would like to just ask about um, the LSVT big intervention, because I feel like it's utilized by a lot of people and it's not specifically I mean, it, that there's literature related to that, but I'm curious, like, where did that fall in, in the CPG and what was the general approach thinking about that intervention? Yeah. As a guideline development group, we decided not to have one PICO question just on LSVT big. And, um, that was strategic on our part and that it, we weren't trying to endorse any one kind of commercial product over another. However, right. it is it was included within the external queuing PICO question. And we included like, you know, I think there were search terms related to it. So we we wanted it to be included. We wanted to this include this literature, but we thought what is the what is the point of LSVT and big and the special ingredient is this verbal queuing about big movements and how that's provided and the rationale for why that's provided. Those cues are then used with exercise. The the key exercises of the cues are used with functional training and gait training as well. So Mm -hmm. 
you know, we kind of thought, where are we going to include it? We'll include it with cues because that's the one thing that carries through LSVT big. Okay. All right. And, you know, that that concept of external cueing is potentially valuable for our patients, but really is just one of the tools in the toolbox. And this CPG gives us a lot of tools, right? A lot of a lot of good intervention with high quality evidence and strong recommendations. So I'm curious, I'm also curious, was there anything of the high quality recommendations that kind of rose to the top in your mind or uh, surprised you as being like as strong as it was? Um, I don't think anything surprised me as much in the high quality evidence and high strength of the recommendations. I think um, I, you know, I'm a little bit biased as a researcher that I was somewhat familiar with the evidence, I think in, in advanced, some of the interesting things in the high quality or or strong recommendations were community-based exercise. And I think that opens up kind of how do we work with our community exercise partners and exercise professionals that physical therapists should be thinking about how our patients participate in community exercise. Yes. Love it. I love that. I mean, that's my jam, but (laughs) I really, like, I agree. I mean, it's like what we do in between either bouts of physical therapy or physical therapy sessions is what is important. It's not, it's not what we're doing with our patients. Like we're just teaching them how to move and, and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. I agree. And, and it's something to think about because a lot of the interventions that were in the aerobic or that were in the resistance training PICO that that were picked up in those PICO questions, when you read the article, they weren't actually physical therapists doing the interventions. They were Mm -hmm. exercise physiologists or exercise trainers. They were twice a week for two years. They were using delivery models that were not actually possible for physical therapists to do. And so I think Mm -hmm. some things for the community-based exercise PICO, it included all the things that were like community groups. We put that in there. So it included Tai Chi groups and Mm-hmm. Just, but also just general exercise groups. But then, if you look at some of the aerobic interventions, they could also have been done in a group setting. But those studies, they were classes that were specific for people with Parkinson's disease. They were, yes, they were all Parkinson's-specific exercise. Well, the patients in the Pico question were all right. people with Parkinson's. Yeah, right. Okay. The other thing that I always. Um, push with patients, especially early in the disease process is the aerobic training because of the evidence that supports um, just general brain health with aerobic training. Um, So would you say that that was very clear in the systematic review of that literature? That's interesting. The way that you worded that question at first, I thought you were going to ask about just like the strength of the evidence on that type on exercise in general. And so aerobic exercise, resistance training and balance training, all are things that had a high quality of evidence and had strong recommendations that they should be a part of physical therapist management. Um, One of the things that's interesting is I think part of the reason that you and many people encourage aerobic exercise, particularly early in the disease is related to this overall brain health. And very early in the disease, people with Parkinson's tend to have fewer gait and balance deficits and things like that. So it's a little bit, um, the specificity of that PICO question 
is low. It's, you know, do aerobic exercise to improve oxygen consumption, which we never measure probably in PT mm-hmm. or very rarely to reduce motor disease severity, very important outcome. This would be something with the movement disorder society or the, the unified Parkinson's disease rating scale. Again, yeah. physical therapists rarely measure that and yeah. to improve functional outcomes, but that's like a really not very specific yeah. thing. Yeah. So I think it's very, it's a very interesting action statement, but not surprising. And I agree with you that physical therapists should definitely be doing that. But we yeah. might have to think about when we're writing a goal, when we're doing aerobic exercise with our patient and we're writing our goals, you have to think about what you're planning to improve with that and how are you going to measure it? You might right. not be improving gait speed if their gait speed isn't really a problem to begin with. Right. One of the other things though that was a little bit surprising was that flexibility exercise is a lower quality of evidence and a weak recommendation. Yeah. I So I wanted to ask about that um, because, you know, I think when we see that stiffness in people with PD, we feel like we should be doing a lot of flexibility and it's not de-implemented, right? You're not saying don't do any but what is the recommendation and um, like, you know, how much should we be doing flexibility training with people with Parkinson's? Great questions. So what we say in the action statement for flexibility training is that physical therapists may implement flexibility exercise to improve range of motion in individuals with Parkinson's disease. So harm to your question, when you see patients that are very stiff, you want to stretch them. And yes, that's, you know, Exactly right. When somebody has reduced range of motion, flexibility exercise can be a part of their, may be a part of their treatment. But because it's a weaker recommendation, I think we just need to be conscious that while it may be a part of their treatment, there are other things that should be a part of their treatment. So Mm -hmm. the way that I interpret this is that I shouldn't be spending my entire 45 minutes with that patient stretching them. I need Mm -hmm. to teach them how to stretch as a part of their exercise routine. It might be a great part of their community based exercise or something that they're doing on their own at home, I'm going to get better outcomes if I choose other interventions. Unless like they come to me and they say, my only goal is to be able to have better range of motion in my legs. Then I would stretch their legs. But if their goal is to improve their function, their balance, their walking, their pain, a lot of other things, I would probably choose other interventions. Right. Okay. And then there was one other recommendation around tele-rehab and that was moderate. And why was that moderate? this is interesting. There just, there isn't a lot, there wasn't a lot of research on it. Now it's very interesting that we selected these PICOs before COVID and the literature reviews were done before COVID. There is Mm -hmm. now more information on tele-rehab than there was before. Um, CPGs are updated every five years. So it's possible that this could rise to higher strength evidence and a um, higher strength recommendation in the future. But at the time, there just wasn't a lot out there. Yeah, that's what I figured. Ooh, one other right. really interesting thing, sorry. One really really interesting thing about that telerehabilitation one is that when we looked at which outcomes were shown to improve with this telerehabilitation models, physical therapy services may be delivered via telerehabilitation to improve balance in individuals in Parkinson's disease. And when I think about my personal practice, that's probably the outcome that I'm least confident that I'm going to improve with telerehab because I, I am- right concerned with how much I challenge people. So it's really interesting to note that I typically would do telerehabilitation to improve their exercise behaviors, but it's probable that that studies on telerehab weren't looking at those exercise behavior outcomes 
mm-hmm. they were looking at functional outcomes. So right, right. it's just an interesting caveat about that one. Yeah. Yeah. That is interesting. And it'll be interesting to see what future information brings yeah. as we're moving more towards um, tele-rehab. And the knowledge translation task force will also try to figure out ways to share information about how to do tele-rehabilitation to improve balance based on the studies that were included in the CPG. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, this is like a ton of really good information and the CPG is just jam-packed with good information. I think our listeners are going to need to take a little bit of time to look at it and uh, digest it. But this is a great I think segue and introduction for people. And we, we really encourage people to go there and to check it out and to utilize those recommendations. Um, And we're so glad that you were here to kind of break it down for us. Great summary at the end of this is to encourage people to go to the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapists Therapies um, webpage on the PD clinical practice guideline. The knowledge translation task force is adding new resources to that page all the time. We currently have three yeah. fact sheets on there and more will be developed soon. So please, you know, maybe you can add that link to the show notes or something and uh, oh yeah, um, send people that, you know, send people the, over to that group. We will put a link specifically in for this CPG page. Thank All you. right. So Miriam, we like to ask people what they do when they're not working, which I'm sure you knew about because you're a listener of our podcast. So what do you do? Um, I wish I could have something like super exciting, but I live in a city, so it's hard to hike. I feel like everybody always says hiking. Um, I would love it when I can, but I would say I am chasing after my four-year-old and one-year-old an awful lot of the time. So, and I do love that time with them most of the time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And when you have kids that age, that's pretty much what you're doing. It is all consuming. Yeah, it is. But that's fabulous because they're only that age once. So thank you. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, this is not the first that we're going to hear about this CPG. We're planning to um, have other folks on talking, you know, specifically about the knowledge translation task force and what they're um, putting together and putting out there so that so that we can help people to implement these recommendations to the best of their ability. Sounds great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for joining us today and special thanks to our guest, Dr. Miriam Rafferty. This podcast was produced and edited by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group podcast team. Our team includes Sarah Zoller, Katie McGraw, Rebecca Martin, Adriana Carey, Christina Burke, Casey Burris, and I'm Parm Paget. Subscribe to our newsletter on the ANPT website, neuropt.org, or check us out on Facebook. And please share this episode with a colleague today. Thanks to Jimmy McKay for providing music. And I will t- try to speak slowly and clearly because I sometimes... Good luck. Speak. You're so fast. I am. I will slow down. I don't know. I was just talking. Okay. I wasn't going to say anything important. Move me along and cut out something. You know, I'll try yeah, to... We, oh, yeah. We'll be cutting stuff. Don't worry. Then I hope you can hear Katie chewing. Yeah. Oh, no, can you? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Oh, okay. <laughs>